0: Tech episodes of this podcast are now supported by Furos.io. That is F U R O S.io. Furos is a Denver cloud consulting firm. And chances are, if there's a big building in downtown Denver with their logo on the outside of it, Furos has got people in there doing some very interesting work that has an impact on those businesses. They focus on AWS cloud consulting and mantra is simple hire the best people they can, pay them really well, and let them work on challenging, interesting projects that have impacts on the business. So, if you are struggling with the cloud, and I know that's a really overused word in the tech space, and projects aren't getting done and you need some help, look them up furos.io. That is F U R O S.io.
1: What are your qualifications? Ah,
0: well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively.
1: I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you?
0: I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thanks, as always, for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, My guest today is Jim Stern, he is the founder of the Marketing Analytics Summit. He is the director emeritus of the Digital Analytics Association. He's the author of a dozen books. And uh, we had a brief chat a couple weeks ago prior to this call. And I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this conversation and this interview. And with that, Jim, welcome and thank you for making the time.
1: Thank you for inviting me to participate. It's
0: a pleasure. Excellent. One of the things I wanted to just get started off right off the bat is your most recent LinkedIn post was about um, brand musts for six brand musts for an AI world. And when you're talking about artificial intelligence with respect to marketing, what exactly is that? Because I know AI and I know the, the, the marketing side, but in your world, what does that actually mean?
1: Well, let's start at the top of the stack. Artificial intelligence is an umbrella term that covers anything that we don't think computers can do. So it's, it's, it's science fiction. It must be artificial intelligence. If people have figured out how to make computers to do it, oh, well, it's just programming. Now it's just machine learning. So artificial intelligence is robots and self-driving cars and computer vision and natural language processing, and, oh, yeah, that machine learning thing, which is what marketing people are using to get things done. Um, we are going to use natural language processing and computer vision to communicate with our customers, but we're going to use machine learning to activate the data that we're collecting. So it's this big, broad term. And um, if, if for the subsection of nerds who are listening, Uh, my definition (laughs) is, um, and and I wish I knew, if anybody knows who invented the following, I want to give them full credit. If it's written in R, it's probably statistical analysis. If it's written in Python, it's probably machine learning. But you know that it's artificial intelligence if it's in PowerPoint. (laughs) I've been dining out on that one and I don't know who to credit.
0: That's okay. I think as long as you don't claim ownership, it's uh, you've done your due diligence. Uh, Like jokes that I remember or funny phrases or quote inspirational quotes. It's like, look, I didn't come up with this, but I'm giving credit back to the universe. I think you'll be fine.
1: There we go.
0: (laughs) Um, In, in speaking about like the AI and, um, Perhaps it's the, the targeting for the advertising. Uh, a story I like to tell is that um, my entrepreneurial company is a clothing company and I was looking at Spanx's website, the Sarah Blakely, like the women's undergarment product to see mm-hmm. simply how they photographed something that a person wouldn't see another person wearing. Right. And the ads that followed me for probably two weeks were all for uh, women's undergarments. (laughs) So I was just laughing at the, like, they know I was there, they know what I looked at, but they didn't know the why. Mm -hmm. And is, is AI and marketing, is that going to help understand the why of what the customer's looking for?
1: Um, So hopefully, yes. Um, I spent two weeks being followed by Hello Kitty for the same reason, (laughs) not not nearly as dangerous when my wife was looking over my shoulder. (laughs) Um, but I was buying for my great niece, not for me. I mean, I wish I could hit a button that said, I'm shopping for somebody else or get a clue. Um, but I want to, I want to, uh, split a hair with you, please. It doesn't know why, um, that's the thing about machine learning that is so hard for humans to understand. We see something and we want to understand why. So what do we do? We pick apart how in order to figure out what the motive was or what the mechanism was. Machine learning is statistical analysis on steroids. It is making a prediction based on the information that it has available. Now humans do that using logic and reason and machine learning uses statistics. And these are different. So I can try to imagine a motive for why you might want to buy women's underwear. You know what, I'm gonna just pass on that one. Instead, I am going to do a statistical analysis saying, you know, there is some percentage of the male population that is buying or shopping for lingerie or underwear for their partner, and some percentage, smaller, for themselves and I don't care which is which, but I do wanna send the right message to the right person. So I'm gonna to try to imagine that if you look at these garments in these sizes, it's probably not for you, it's for your partner. That's, that's reason. A machine will just say all of the people who, who looked at these particular items behaving in this particular way were more likely to buy this thing when I sent that message. I don't know what the message is. I don't know who the people are. There's no why behind it at all. It's just math. I just look at a ton of data and I'm able to pick it apart statistically rather than from a reason perspective.
0: Hmm. Well, sometimes I just like to feel pretty. Let me just say it that way. There you (laughs) go. Well, I find the, so I was a software engineer for 10 years and I find this fascinating because I wrote embedded systems firmware for pacemakers and coming from literally a dumb chip that only had inputs and outputs and it became more um, apparent when I became a parent. That's not meant to be a pun. That's just kind of like the words that I use. Well done. Um, Well played, sir. (laughs) <laughs> and I hate puns. If if you if you knew me better, you'd know that even as that was falling out of my mouth, I was embarrassed to say that. But um, trying to create an intelligent device that could handle like a signal from the heart or the 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 surgery electro pencil, and trying to put all these conditions and actions and responses in there it it initially made me very, very nervous. And I think it drove me for a quality, um, a mission of quality. It's like, I have to think about all these things. Mm-hmm. And seeing how that's developed, and I haven't been an engineer for 15 years, and just seeing how this has all progressed, and it it is really exciting and encouraging and so very interesting to me to see – how big the data has become.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, your, your background in programming will, will serve you very well um, because it's, it, there, there is an actual natural progression. Uh, we have straight coding. Um, you can do machine language. I mean, assembly language, if you want. You can, you can write Fortran and COBOL. Um, you can write C++. You can write HTML standard coding. You tell it what to do. It does it. If you did it right, it does it right. And if you can think of a thousand different ways that it might go wrong and trap those errors and Uh and either correct for it or spit out an error code, God bless you. But eventually everybody gets a blue screen of death. There's just no way around it. And then we move to um, mathematical modeling, which sounds a little scary, but actually it's an Excel spreadsheet, right? It is here's some formulas, here's some values, and look, I can go change things and I can play what if games and I can iterate and it is a program that lets me do math in a faster way. Then we progress to predictive analytics, which is all of those statistics classes that you tried to avoid in college that are actually valuable for saying, well, here's what here's the data we have and if the future looks like the past, here's our prediction for what's going to happen. And that predictions are, whether it's the weather or the stock market or who's going to buy my product, that's a very valuable tool. Then we get to machine learning, which flips it on its head a little bit. Instead of humans sitting down and trying to reason out all of the possibilities, we have taught the machine to look at the data and find correlations. Go find a pattern, go find something that looks familiar. That's um, unsupervised. It's just like, here's a bunch of data. What do you see? Tell me something I didn't know. Supervised is even more straightforward. I'm going to give the machine 100,000 pictures of cats, and I'm going to label them cats, and I'm going to show it a picture of a skunk and say, is that a cat? And the machine's going to go, "Mm, I don't think so, because it doesn't look like the other things. And that's you just train the machine, but you can give it, something out of the blue, it's never seen before. And it comes up with a mathematical prediction that says, I'm, I'm 78% sure that is not a cat. And that's pretty cool. It's a different kind of programming. It's not spooky, scary. It's not black box. We don't know what's going on inside. It's just a different approach.
0: And one of the things that cracks me up when people talk about uh, Skynet and computers taking over and, and things like that. It's like until my Samsung and the voice dialing and the voice to text is a hundred
1: percent correct.
0: Yeah. I'm not worried about any of that stuff.
1: You know, there's a, there's a whole new game show category of guess what the person who texted you meant. <laughs> right. Cause they're, They are, they're, they're doing the dictation thing and hitting sand. It's like, what on earth? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, put a
0: comma in there just for fun, please. (laughs) Punctuation is your,
1: your friend. Yes.
0: (laughs) So I wanted to go back on your, your, your career and your education and, and I would say probably your passion in this subject because the, having the marketing mind and your expertise in the analytics and the machine learning and all that is very very technical and how did you arrive at what at least to me at this point looks like a very unique skill set and passion because the the marketing i would say is more of the um to put it maybe more artistic whereas the machine learning is definitely technical and you know, engineering based. How did you arrive at such a, a robust coverage of these two topics?
1: Um, so I'm a creative person. I am an, uh, a writer. I am an actor. I am a sculptor. And I you know, met my wife in Shakespeare class, and that's why I have my degree in Shakespeare. And when I went out into the world to find a job, there was an ad in the paper that said no experience necessary and I qualified selling Apple IIe's out of a retail store in Santa Barbara, California. Wow. And for the first two weeks, the the guy who was a computer, actually he was the first computer science professor at UCSB. And he quit to open up a computer store when nobody knew what that was. And I said, you know, these, these things are so amazing, I don't, I don't know anything about them and I'm not a salesperson, I've never sold anything, but wow, they're so cool. And he said, all right, I'll tell you what, sit over there in the corner, here's an Apple II and a manual, and I will pay you to sit over there for two weeks and learn that thing and don't talk to anybody in the store. If anybody asks you questions, just send them over to me. Don't talk to anybody. Okay. And on the last day of the last week, this, the owner came over and said, this is John and John has some questions for you. Please spend some time with John. I said, sure. Happy to. How can I help you? Well, what are these things good for? I so, said, um, wow, just about anything you can imagine that has to do with saving and storing and calculating information. So, can it do payroll? Yeah, yeah, up here on the shelf, we have these peach tree software packages. Can you show me? Oh, I'm afraid I haven't had a chance to study those yet. And I realized I needed to go to tonight class t- to take accounting. I so, said, well, what else can they do? So, oh, well, like your, your address book. They can remember all of your, your friends and family and phone numbers and addresses. Well, show me how that would work. And in fact, imagine this. I'm in my living room and the computer's in the den, and I want to call Fred. What do I do? It's like, oh, well, you, you you go into the den and you turn on the computer, which is here, and the monitor, which is here, and you make sure the keyboard, which is here, is plugged into here, and then you put in this five and a quarter inch floppy diskette, which is the operating system, and you wait a minute and a half while it loads. Do, 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 do. Okay, now you take that out and you take this one, this diskette, which is the program, and you put that in and you wait a minute and a half while it loads. Do, 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 do. And then you take this five and a quarter inch diskette, which is your data diskette, and you put that in, you type in Fred, and boom, there it is. I said He So that's about 10 minutes. Uh-huh. Or I could reach in my pocket and pull out my little black book and open it to F and call Fred. Said, yeah, yeah, that would work too. and he turns to the owner of the computer store and he says, yeah, you should hire him. (laughs) And that's how I became technical. I just was thrilled that these things were so capable. And like every, I I think every preteen who touches a computer goes, you mean when I tell it to do X, it always does X. Unlike the humans in my life. I love this machine. I can trust this machine. It does, I can make it do whatever I want. And I then I moved from there to selling business computers to companies that had never owned one before and then selling software development tools. And then in 1993, I tripped over the internet and went, oh, mind blown. This could do so much more than anybody can imagine. And I put on a series of seminars in 1994 on how to do marketing on the internet. And in 95, my first book came out and this ability to stay one step ahead of everybody else so that I can be a teacher and I can get on stage and give a presentation, which is, satisfies my desire to be a performer. It's just, it was a match made in heaven. So I will do marketing on the internet and advertising and email marketing and social media and, and, Analytics. Ooh. And in 2002, I started a conference, the Marketing Analytics Summit. 2004, the audience created the Digital Analytics Association. And then along came machine learning and I went, got to write another book, which is the world's best excuse for doing a deep dive into a subject you know nothing about. (laughs) Because you can call up anybody in the world at any level of expertise. And say, I'm writing a book and I would like to interview you. And everybody says yes. It's wonderful. <laughs> and that's so much more than you wanted to know. I'm rambling. I know that. No, 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 not at all. I I
0: love the the granularity and sort of the the butterfly path of the story. And I had a Apple IIE <clears throat> as well. Yeah. Ah. And I think a Commodore 64 was our first computer. And you mean you didn't have a trash eighty? <laughs> I don't think so. No. Good man. <laughs> um, I, I had a. I wanted to ask about your your first book, but I wanted to come back to something, knowing that you're you're an actor and a sculptor and a writer. And do you think being able to see something that's not there, especially as a sculptor or an actor, has helped you embrace? the uncertainty about the future and start having it go from very, very soft focus to crystal clear.
1: Um, so it's all pretty soft focus. Um, it's all very exciting and clarity is always comes with hindsight. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I went to the New York world's fair in 1964 and made a video telephone call to my mother and brother who were on the other side of a concrete wall. And it was a little tiny screen and we could see each other and talk to each other. And I thought, wow, that's the future. And you know, it only took 50 years to to finally happen. (laughs) And so some of it is obvious. It's just so clear when I saw the internet, the first time I saw my first homepage show up, and it was a graphical user interface available to anybody with an internet connection, it just suddenly the world opened up of somebody could log on to my computer and run software that I wrote to try to explain my product to them. It could be, a presentation. It could be a video. It could be a, a decision tree of, do you prefer blue or green? Do you want large, medium, or small? And people could go and make it as personal as they wanted. And it just all made sense immediately, except people were still on 14-4 dial-up modems, and no, you can't have a flying car yet. <laughs>
0: is it a skill that you have had to cultivate to keep elevating your your um sightline
1: no Sorry. it's it is it's just curiosity and wild abandon i just want to know i want to understand when somebody says we have a system that can take this data and and make that output the marketing person in me says Well, that's bullshit. Tell me how it works, really. And 90% of the time they say, oh, we do this, 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 and this. And I say, oh, so what you're really saying is you're only doing this and this. Well, yeah. And the rest is marketing fluff. Well, yeah. Okay. Thanks for your time. But then the other percent, they go, oh, well, we do this and this and this. I'd never seen that. I didn't know you could do that. Well, if you can do this and this, can you also do that and that? Well, maybe will you sign this non-disclosure agreement? Sure. Hmm. I just want to know.
0: Yeah. I I wrote down curiosity and wild abandon and I love the, the curiosity part of that. And that, and and again, I forget where I heard this. I'm giving credit back to the universe, but Mm -hmm. in terms of just conversations or getting to know somebody and it could be it. Networking events, or I use it particularly in in business meetings, be interested rather rather than interesting mm-hmm. and it changes the dynamics significantly to the point where if I'm at a, a rubber chicken you know event where everybody's kind of going around the room and they're like, "Oh, what do you do? What do you do?" When it gets to me, I'll deflect back to some other interesting question that I'd like to ask somebody else and I play a game of how long can I go without talking about myself
1: <laughs> and you know that works terrific in real life until Matt Sodnikar calls you and says will you be on a podcast where we want to talk all about you and then <laughs> okay I'll talk about me <laughs> oh boy
0: gotcha Jim <laughs> <laughs> So, um, take me back to your first book, 1995. What, what was it?
1: Marketing on the internet. Okay. Actually, sorry. The title was worldwide web marketing. Ah. I went to an internet world conference, um, in Washington DC there were, and I went to every exhibitor on the show floor on the exhibit hall floor, all 19 of them. And the first one was, John Wiley and Sons Publishers. And I said, where's the book about doing marketing on the internet? That's the one I want to read. Said, well, um, actually there's another publisher over there that has a book on doing business on the internet. No, no, no. I read that one. It doesn't, it doesn't really talk about marketing. Well, what would such a book have in it? Oh, well, you talk about this and this and this and this. Well, do you think you could write one? And I said, "Uh oh, yes. How, how how would i go about doing that well send us a proposal well what does a proposal look like so well, i'll <laughs> email you a template and you fill it out and send it in and when i got the template it was not really about the book or the subject matter it was a marketing plan for your book who is the audience where do they hang out how do you reach them who would you get to write the blurb on the back of the book and I just went, sure, I can do this. I've been in marketing for 20 years. I know how to do this stuff. And then they sent me a contract. Wow. So a
0: couple things are popping into mind. They started with the end in mind, right? Mm -hmm. So they wanted to see if... Did you think it was like a gatekeeper type thing where they were seeing if you actually could just execute this?
1: Well, the gatekeeper part is, you know, send us a sample chapter. Okay. But the guy that I met on the show floor when I said, you know, I, I've, I haven't really written anything serious since college, but I enjoy writing and I'd like to give it a try. Um, you know, what is the gatekeeper thing? And he said, well, authors, would-be authors don't really understand. Um, I am an acquisitions editor. I'm responsible for 24 books a year. Every two weeks, I need to find somebody who can actually deliver a book to me. You might be one of them. I'd like to read anything you write. Please, please send me anything. And that gave me empowerment to just go, oh, maybe I can help this guy out and be an author for him. (laughs)
0: Well, it's taken me back to The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And he talks about, and I'm sorry, um, Ego is the Enemy by yeah. Ryan Holiday. And he was talking about George Clooney earlier in his career and about how he realized that everybody hated the audition process, the casting director, everybody, the actors hated it.
1: Mm-hmm. And when
0: he started making it not about himself and figuring out what job does this person in the process need to get done Mm. and focusing on how do I make their life easy? And then knowing if they hire me, I'm going to just help them along the way. And so the, I was just really pondering that acquisitions editor role is just like, this guy's got to find stuff. And if it's not your stuff, maybe you connect him with somebody else, but, Yeah. Like everybody's got a quota to some extent and a job and just, you know, and I'm just uh, um, stepping on the words just a little bit because it's like, holy cow, like anybody could do that. You just find the template and the acquisitions editor who needs content. Now, all of a sudden, holy cow, like you're, you're, light years closer to being a published author than you were just sitting at the coffee shop going, man, I've got something to say, and how do I get this
1: out? Mm-hmm. And you become that editor's best friend. And of the dozen books that I've written, 10 of them went through John Wiley and Sons because I understood their process. And, and it's terrific when somebody says, oh, you wrote a book. How quaint. Who's the publisher? Oh, well, I published it myself. Oh, I put it up <laughs> Uh, John Wiley and Sons. Oh, really? So it's a textbook. Well, no, it's not a textbook. It's a, it's a how to for business people, but it's still a large professional publishing house has done all of the vetting and said, yay, verily you are an author.
0: So it just gives you credibility and, um, legitimacy.
1: Well, that's, that's what a book is for. Um, Unless your name is Rowling, you don't write books for money. <laughs> you you write books because they're the world's thickest business card. And when somebody has trouble introducing you, you can just say, Well, I'm author of. Oh, so you know stuff. Hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorta. <laughs> I I did enough research to be able to put together a story. That made enough sense that a publishing house spent a whole bunch of money putting it on paper. Yes, by golly, I know something.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm really starting to enjoy your um, your your logic and I guess your pragmatism about just and. It's land and these these comments for me are landing like safes, just hitting the pavement with just such force, and I love it. Like you just talking about the book being the the business card. It's just like I love how you just distill things down to almost their bare essence. And it's,
1: it's, it's really, really enjoyable. That is a super high compliment and it is greatly appreciated because I, I I keep threatening that I'm going to get a business card that says professional explainer. (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't actually do this stuff. I talk about it. I explain it to people. I am not a machine learning data scientist. That's, that's not what I do. That's not who I am. But I understand it well enough to be able to explain it to somebody else. And I'm good enough at asking questions that you know when I'm sitting next to a geological hydrologist on the airplane randomly and ask them about their career and what kind of problems they solve, eventually they turn to me and say, so you're a hydrologist too? <laughs> I, I just want to know stuff.
0: <laughs> One of the skills I put on my LinkedIn profile came from uh, just a random conversation. I think I may have been talking about Adobe illustrator and mm-hmm. I was like, I'm just a hack at this. And I said, I'm, I'm like a real good implementer. Like I take pieces and assemble Legos and my buddy's mm-hmm. like, if you put that as a skill on LinkedIn, I'll endorse you. And so I have a real good implementer on my LinkedIn profile and I have, yeah. uh, I have three
1: endorsements for that Yes, so as a
0: professional explainer.
1: I mean, implementation, to- implementation is a bear and, and a real stumbling block for all the technologies I have ever tried to explain to people. So we just buy this tool and plug it in and mm, no. It's all about change management and legacy systems, and it's all gonna take a while. And you know, for every dollar you spend on technology, you need to spend $5 or $10 on people. So being, being a good implementer, that's, that's a rare talent. <laughs> I'm a real good implementer, Jim. <laughs>
0: <Outstanding>. <laughs> I am pleased to know you. <clears throat> Um, What was your uh, uh, writing process like in 1995 and how has it evolved? Because I'm fascinated about how people approach um, large scale projects like this and especially ones where really at the start, nobody cares. Like you talked about JK Rowling, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I could write a book and my neighbor could write a book. You could write another one, but that first one where there's no guarantee of success. There's no guarantee of financial compensation. If it doesn't happen, the universe is simply indifferent, like it didn't exist. And so how is, what was your first process and how has
1: it evolved? The process is pretty much the same with one big difference. Um, The hard part is the outline. The hard part is what is the sequence of knowledge required Required so that when people get to the last chapter and they and, and you are able to actually tell them what they actually need to understand, what did they need to know before that so that they can comprehend it in the last chapter? So, what is that sequence? And it's not, I'm not going to say storytelling, that's that's a bit of cliche and an actually an important different tool. I just mean if you're going to under if you if you want to understand high-level math, you have to start off with simple math. It's it's that sort of thing. That's hard. That takes serious cognition. The rest is doing research and finding bits and pieces that are going to fall into the specific chapters along the way. And the 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 method that I use is both physical and electronic. So I'll find websites, I'll find articles online, I'll find quotes and blog posts, and I'll save them into folders 1 through 10 for my chapters. And in real life, I might find something in a magazine, or I might be somewhere where I can't save it where I want to, so I print it out and I've got a piece of paper, and I will put in a manila folder 1 through 10, and then sort them all out and go, okay, well, I'm working on chapter three. Let's pull out all the stuff in chapter three and try to put it in a sequence of one to 10. And that's been pretty much the methodology. The big difference between that first book and this one is the overwhelming existential dread, fear, and anxiety. It's mitigated a little bit now that I've done it a few times.
0: Are there, are there other tools you use? Um, Like I'm a huge Trello fan and uh, probably if they ever went out of business, my life would fall apart completely, but are there, are there other electronic um, and not looking for plugs or anything like that, but that are, that have really improved your productivity or your organization, either
1: mobile desktop or um, otherwise? You know, the stuff that works well for me is, is the the real simplistic tools. Um, I'm a big Excel spreadsheet fan, Mm. not necessarily for math, but I use it like Trello. I I have a timeline and I mean, maybe it's a PERT chart, but, but it's easy to, to manipulate things. I, I think an important issue here is that a lot of the work that I do is individual. So when it's time to work collaboratively, then yeah, Trello, Slack, all the, all the tools we're used to. But when I'm doing my work an Excel spreadsheet, a Word document, um, I, I think visually in PowerPoint cause I'm a public speaker. And so PowerPoint is my, um, you know, the crutch that I use, not like here, my bullet points, but here are six pictures for one sentence so that you can Mm. see what I'm saying. The only other one that that comes to mind that I've, I've just been addicted to is called auto hotkey. Hmm. Um, Auto hotkey. It lets you create, um, keyboard shortcut macros. So how many times a day do I type my email address? You know you use it as your username, you use it to when you're responding to people. So I have to I have a keyboard shortcut that just spits out my email address. I have a keyboard shortcut that spits out my company name and address because I do that five times a day, and I don't need to type it every time. Um, I use it to quickly access a variety of files that I use constantly. And it's so simplistic and it's free. And it, I've been using it for so long, I, when I got a new laptop and downloaded the new version, it does so much stuff that you would actually need to be a programmer to take advantage of it. I just use it for keyboard shortcuts. Hmm.
0: <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's a skill that I've had to truly cultivate and it came from a lot of, uh, self-reflection and, um, having, things that i had to work on you know both personally slash professionally and my son and i share <clears throat> excuse me the same strength which can also be a limitation in some sense that we'll have a very very visual and once i see something in my head like if you and i are like on that airplane and we're collaborating about a problem and what about this what about this and we arrive at something that could be like a concept that, all right, it's not ever going to survive first launch or first contact, but at least it's a path we could take. The challenge I have is with it being done in my head, then the process and procedure to take like that first next step and just start chiseling away at it because I Mm -hmm. tend to even today still get overwhelmed with a concept and seeing the end point and working backwards. And then what are like the first three steps I need to take and just, Mm, and just feeling overwhelmed with, wow, are there a thousand steps here? Are there 50 steps here? And and I'm very good at dealing with uncertainty, which that's a whole, that'll be a part two topic or over beers, but I don't want to get into that that right now. But, um, just taking a step and going in a direction and just getting going. And I don't think I'm a heavy duty procrastinator, but I I think I spend time thinking too much about getting the right first step. Mm. And I've had to learn, at least for me, that any first step is a right first step. It's the having the better next step Mm -hmm. is more critical.
1: Yeah. The, the, the desire to accomplish something, um, and the fear of failure are real tough to balance. Um, I I have taped to my monitor the go to quote be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. Wow. <laughs> I and love I, that. And I think about um when people reach out to me the thing that that always amazes me and now I I'm looking back over 30 years people come and say gosh I'm really interested in in playing this part or doing this thing or, or starting this company or accomplishing this task. Do you have any recommendations? And I'm always so pleased to be asked that I will do anything to help people. And then 20 years later, they are, you know, chief data officer of some major company and call me on the phone and say, yeah, I was just thinking about you the other day because you told me way back when that I should just go for it. And I did. And I th- and I want to thank you, and my heart melts. It's like, really, I did that, cool. And it reminds me to not be afraid to reach out to anybody about anything. And and that's a tough thing. I'm 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 pretty wrapped up in uh, trying to accomplish what I'm going to do, trying to get it right, and and letting the baby out into the world in front of people who will criticize it is. Really tough to do, but always pays off. And yes. when you tell other people what you want to become, they help you. It's, it's miraculous. They're willing. And I didn't realize that until I discovered how willing I was and how much I really wanted to help others.
0: That's that's huge. I'm I'm turning around at my other monitor, but what I have on just a little index card in red sharpie is, "What are you afraid of?"
1: Ooh, yes.
0: That's (laughs) tacked. That's tacked right there. Yeah. The other one is more of like an ADHD thing. It's, "Are you doing the most important thing right now?" Oh dear. <laughs> oh my no! That one, that one. Um, I tend to like shield my eyes and go, mm, "Sorry,
1: <laughs> Absol- boy, I'm right there with you." Um, when I was, when I, whenever I'm in the in the depths of working on a book, um, and my wife comes into the office and looks around and says, "This place is spotless. You need to work on your book some more." there's nothing like a little house cleaning like oh i should just i should just take care of this oh i've got three new emails no no got it are you doing the most important thing is just a killer hard
0: (laughs) that's resistance right there and i have i have done that and next time i start Cleaning up before I do something, I'm gonna text you. <laughs> okay,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will
0: most likely have the uh, the Clorox wipe in my hand and the, the duster, <laughs> and I'll be like, Jim, I'm cleaning and avoiding something. There we go. Yep. yep. <laughs> common common problem. Um. You know, you talked about just asking people, going back to writing the book and getting the quotes or getting the advice and um, tying it back to being bold and mighty or at least appearing to be fearless. Um, yeah, you know, there was a guest that I had a couple, I think it was last year, and somebody's like, How the heck did you get this guy to do this? And I said, I am not trying to be a smartass and trying to minimize this. I simply emailed him and asked him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's how it works. It's, it's miraculous. And I forget that so often. Um, Part of it is, Oh, I don't want to bother them. And part of it is, I don't want to seem needy. And part of it is, but I actually do know the best way. I I know I don't Mm -hmm. need to ask anybody else. So it's it's a hard thing to to break out of your shell, but once you start doing it, um, you can do it more, and and then you discover, um, and and you know. So I'm I'm just about to celebrate my 64th birthday, so I'm reaching way back into my past. <laughs> it's like realizing, if I ask enough girls out on a date, eventually one of them is going to say yes. <laughs>
0: But it's the asking part, right? It's...
1: Nerve-wracking.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I I had a sort of accountability exercise from uh, my friend Ethan Butte, who works at BombBomb and does like a customer experience podcast. And mm-hmm. in the course... And one of the things I love about doing this is the the connection and the commonality. Like if you and I were in Denver or California, we'd be best friends. We would just be hanging out all the time because <laughs> yeah. we have so much in common and just shared experiences and philosophies. And one of the things that Ethan and I talked about was To Sell Us Human by Dan Pink. And hmm. he wrote a book on rehumanizing communication and got Dan Pink to do the... Um, a, a, what do you call it? Like a blurb, like a, not a, review, a blurb. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I think it was actually during the interview and I said, I love that guy. I've heard, I've listened to his books. I've read his books. He's been on podcasts. Like, how did you reach him? And it's a lot like your acquisitions editor. Just here's a process. He made it easy. And I committed on the air or, or digital hard disc, whatever a podcast is. It's like, I will, figure out a way and I'll reach out and get Dan pink on this podcast. And I had crafted something from like two other books, like a survival book and improv and put it in a package to him and got a response that was real and from him, Mm -hmm. but it was, Hey, I'm super busy now. And he's like, you know, talk to me later. I said, well, what if I reached out to you in 10 months, which might be October of this year. He's like, that would be great. Thank you. Looking forward to it. And I just got that email and I went, holy shit. (laughs) I got to a guy that's been on Tim Ferriss. that has been on the New York times bestseller list. And I, all I did was just ask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, and now it hasn't happened. He, I don't know if it ever will, but it's like, it's not October yet. <clears throat> that's very true. That's very true. <laughs> um, one of the, I want to steer this back to, uh, you and, and your, your, uh, your vision, your, and on your LinkedIn profile. Yes.
1: Let's talk about me. Yes. Finally. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so you've got predictions every decade of helping people grasp what's coming. And mm-hmm. what do you see in the 20s and the 2020s and the 2030s?
1: Um so if if you know often I'm asked are you working on another book and the answer is usually not at this time. Um but if if you held a contract to my head and made me choose a topic, I would say um, privacy is going to push us to the point where um, we're going to flip the model of who owns the data. So if you look at the uh, California Consumer Protection Act or you look at Uh, Europeans GDPR. It says that I have the right to be forgotten. I have the right to call you up and say, I want you to delete all the information you have about me, which is kind of impossible to do for a number of reasons. Um, We in, in marketing have been working diligently for decades to try to remember who you are and connect you up with everything else so that when you do buy something from us, we stop advertising at you. Wouldn't that be nice? When you do have a problem with customer service, we rep- remember that next time. And, and remember when we contact you again to ask, how how is it now? How did it go? And it's really hard to take all of these disparate accounting systems, Salesforce automation systems, cookie based web visit systems, email and, and merge them all together. So we actually know who you are. That's really hard. And now the government wants us to do it in order to hit delete. That doesn't make it any easier to put all those pieces together. Hmm. And I have the right to transfer the data from you to somebody else. I would prefer doing business with, which in, in, you know, when I talk to people in the European union and I say, but that's crazy. No business would, would allow the data to leave them and go to a competitor. It it, it can't happen. The answer is, well, the European union is, was not designed to support business. It was designed to support citizens. And that's what we care about. And Oh, we have opening. That's, that's different here in the United States. You know, we, we have the best government money can buy. so, it's going to flip to where people have control over their own data they're going to store it in a vault or a pod and they're going to allow access so if i have a new email address how many different websites and and apps and devices am i going to have to go mess with uh. nightmare nightmare So instead, I will update my pod and all of those apps and websites and systems that need that information, I will grant them access to get at that information. This pod will also contain my entire medical history, which I will not let my accountant look at, and all (laughs) of my financial history, which I will not let my doctor look at, but I will control all of it. And I will allow Netflix to see some things and I'll let Amazon see some things and I will control it myself. This is an idea that's been around for more than a decade. Uh, there's a vendor relationship management project out of um, uh, Harvard. Uh, Doc Searles has been working on this since, you know, he, he was one of the authors of the Clue Train Manifesto 20 years ago. And and has that, the, the basic premise of that book is the marketplace is a conversation. It's not a transaction. And we've forgotten that. And how do we get back to that? And this is the answer of how we get back to it. So that's in progress. And then Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the World Wide Web, is starting an initiative called Solid, which is the uh, the an open source method of creating a pod of data storage that you own and you allow access. This changes the model when you then layer that with artificial intelligence. And I have an automated bot that works on my behalf and communicates with the rest of the world. And, and literally on my behalf, it is for, it's not Google. It's not Apple. It's not Twitter. It's not Amazon. It is mine for me. And it will say, Hey, Jim, your dishwasher has a 90% chance of failing in 30 days. And I've done some research and I found 20 models that will fit in your kitchen. I found 10 that will fit your budget. I found three that'll fit your style. And I found two that will fit your schedule next Thursday afternoon when they can install it. Which of these two would you like? And that will be marketing. So marketers need to figure out how to communicate with these systems that work on behalf of consumers. It's going to be a little bit different.
0: I love the idea of the efficiency with the the dishwasher example. Mm -hmm. And to me, uh, again, just trying to be as efficient as possible with tasks that have not much importance i mean once the dishwasher goes out it's very very important but to take it even that far with like the scheduling piece i loved that visualization of a predictive solution with the budget and the timing and everything else and that's Mm -hmm. that's fascinating and with respect to the pod it has have you or have people that are thinking about this, um, data ownership, would that be a different, I'm going to get, um, very specific on the question, a different storage solution in, in it, as opposed to say Dropbox or Google drive or like, uh, something in a data center, are people thinking about how that data will fit? physically live and then be connected to all of that.
1: Yes, they are. And they the thinking is, it's up to you. Do you want to store it on your own server in your closet? Do oh. you trust Google? Do you trust AWS? Do you want to have it in the cloud? That's entirely up to you.
0: So this goes even beyond um, permissions, right? So you log in for a new app on your phone. It's asking you, hey, the following app will receive these pieces of information.
1: Mm -hmm. In exchange for, so we'll give you, if you give us, I mean, the first one that ever happened to me was Amazon back when they only sold books said, give us your email address. Like, great. So you can spam me in exchange for your email address and who are your favorite authors, we will tell you when they have a new book coming out. We will offer to sell it to you at a pre-release discount, and you'll be the first one on your block to know about this ahead of all your friends. And I went, Oh my God, here's my email address. That's a fabulous service. Thank you very much. And then I realized I was the fish jumping in the barrel and handing Amazon the loaded gun. (laughs) was okay because it was a fair exchange. They were going to give me information and a discount in exchange for telling them I like to read science fiction. Yeah, deal. You're on. Now, as we get more sophisticated in, oh, and now we want to know your location all the time, hmm, that's a conversation. What do I get in return? So I asked this question
0: of, the smart people I've talked to that have the the data or the analytics uh, experience what is your privacy concern what is your viewpoint on just the data in general and uh, like i guess your data existing in the universe are you concerned about it how do you
1: view it when you think about that well, I'm off the hook. You said this was for smart people. So. <laughs> um, I, I will go out of my way for convenience. I will sign up. I will be, you know, when, when I go to the grocery store and I, here's my customer ID number. They know how healthy I eat. They know how much alcohol I consume. They know what prescription drugs I buy. They know how many condoms I purchase. And that's okay because I get $2 off. <laughs> now, my concern is when my data is used against me. And <clears throat> the first time that this you know got writ large in the world was... In Holland, in the, uh, in the Depression in the, the 20s, and the late 20s and early 30s, people were destitute and literally dying in the street. And the government said, let's do a census and collect information on people's religion, so that if they die destitute, we can give them a proper burial. And everybody said, that's a, that's a nice thing to do. And in the 30s, when the Nazis came in, they said, Thank you very much for the database of Jewish people. Wow.
0: So I've never heard about what was happening in Holland. That's, uh, I've never heard about that. And it's
1: why, you know, GDPR is what it is, because they have firsthand experience of how data can be used against you. Now, let's bring this to a modern day horror story where your likes and connections on Facebook are used against you by a foreign power to change your beliefs about things to the point where you will vote against your own best interest. This is proven. This is Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. It It is a threat to democracy. And fortunately... I just read this week where DARPA has said they are starting up a fake news program. They're putting out feelers and they're spending money on algorithms that can identify when news is fake and when it's being used against people. It is a, it's a pretty serious problem and that I have a lot of fear about.
0: In what context, what are you, what, what's the fear or fears
1: the fear is that anybody whether it's a foreign agent or our own political parties want to they can use data about us in order to feed us falsehoods to change our vote mhm and that is technically and psychologically possible it's proven and it's scary
0: Would it be a a misnomer to label that like data driven propaganda?
1: That's, that's, I I think that's a gentle way to say it. That's exactly
0: what it is. Yes. What would be a a non gentle way to say that?
1: Weaponized information. Oh, there's, there are a couple of um, uh, documentaries going around on Netflix now about Cambridge Analytica. And I, I recommend them, um, you know, for, for those of who are having trouble staying up late at night, staring at the ceiling, this will help you do that.
0: <laughs> I've seen that and I, I definitely want to watch that. And um, you know, I think the, the group polarization and the confirmation bias mm-hmm. that's being, so exploited by, you know, again, with nefarious purposes and, you know, destructive mindsets. And I know that, you know, I, I remember my dad even before Facebook would send me like somebody had forwarded him an email and it's just header after header of like 15 people forwarded this to 15 people. Right. Yeah. This. and I I can't remember the specific example, but it was something like, like, I think it may have been John McCain and saw somebody with a bumper sticker he didn't like on his car. Like somebody just wrote this story Mm -hmm. and forwarded it around. And it it was again, pre Reddit, pre Facebook and all that. And just forwarded this around. And I just kind of read through it and I was like, did he really get out of a car and like, and I'm making this up because I can't remember, but right. it was something to the point where he confronted somebody, and it definitely was like written for Republicans, by Republicans to veterans. blah. blah. and I was just like, it's, I'm looking at this and I can see this unfold like a bad joke or a bad scene mm-hmm. in a movie. Yeah. And was just like, wow. And this was like in the early days of email, too. And I was like, mm-hmm. huh. So like the, I want to be cautious about how I say this. Like I respect their devious ability. I don't like it, but I respect that they have figured this out.
1: Like, yes. Like
0: respecting the enemy, I guess is what
1: I'm saying. I mean, that was the once, once the, the horror left me, I, you have to be pretty impressed with whoever came up with the idea of flying a commercial jet into a skyscraper. Yes. Uh, You know, evil genius.
0: Yes. And I, I echo that sentiment and I've said that too. And to back you up on that, I said this, the, um, you know, all the like Sun Tzu and everything, you know, all about, um, you know, knowing your enemy and knowing your limitations. And Mm -hmm. again, um, not praising these guys in any way. It just in the context of saying that, that we, the enemy was way smarter that day.
1: Yes, exactly. So, so that's where my fear about data and privacy, that's where it ends up. It ends up with your data is being used against you. And that's not a slam on technology. It is a slam on bad actors. I mean, you can, you can say that uh, the highway system is horrible because you could rob a bank and then drive away at, at 60 miles an hour and be out of town before anybody knows it. So we should shut down all the highways? No, no. But I did hear an op-ed on the radio the other day that made me think, gee, is that too far? No, it's not too far. I kind of agree that Facebook should not be allowed to sell political advertising until they can prove that they have a method of identifying who is placing the ad and where the money comes from until they can do that. So far, all they've done is, oh yeah, that happened. We're sorry. Whether they lose data or it's proven that Cambridge Analytica misused them, oh, yeah, we're sorry is not good enough anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Reddit has been lit up because uh, Jack Dorsey, the the CEO of Twitter, his account was hacked, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, you know, there's been multiple threads about well, Art, you know, is he getting kicked off because his account was posting just. Dis- violent racist things Mm -hmm. and there's been other people that have, you know, other comedians I've listened to on podcasts. Like I just like asked this question and Twitter shut me down. Yeah. And so, you know, is it, you know, what's the accountability of all that?
1: Yeah. And, and it gets, it gets pretty political pretty quick. And um, there's, there is no, Set answer, you know oh, the answer is if you implement this technology, it'll all be solved. We're dealing with humans, and it's a never ending problem. It is the problem of computer security, which is an a constant arms race there is There is no end game except that we hope that our guys you know the good guys are smarter today than the bad guys.
0: Yes. What do you see for social media in 2030,
1: 2020, 2030? Hmm. I I don't see a utopia. I see, I see even more splintering, hmm. uh, even more filter bubble. Um, and and the, the and this is true across all media. I remember being in a hotel room when Roger Stone was arrested. And I just, you know, my, my far left-leaning self did a little happy dance. And I thought, you know what? I'm watching MSNBC. I need to turn it over to Fox News and find out the other side of the story. And they were both equally sensational and lacking in data. Hmm. So I went to Reuters and The Economist to find out what's actually happening. And I think there is um, an opportunity for the news to happen, for there to just be, here are the facts as they are known, instead of here is the infotainment that will polarize people. And social media, because it's a wide open, uh, humans are humans and psychology is not going to get changed overnight. And so I, 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 I don't see pretty things, I'm afraid. I w- I'm, I'm going to have to work on that because I, I, it's, it's so easy to be negative.
0: Agreed. And I think the one thing I would wish for people would be just the awareness. And that comes Mm -hmm. from personal and professional development and just being aware of the circumstances. And again, not putting any political bent on this and just being understanding of the machine or or what is being attempted to be inflicted upon you. And Mm. the simple fact that you vetted two additional sources because you're aware that things were either polarized or sensationalized or, you know, lacking Mm -hmm. like that would be my one wish for just anybody, just like be aware, you know, and not suspicious, just be aware and then just understand that, Oh, this ad popped up here or this email was sent to you because of this. Like, just take a, take a second and just think about it. Just be a little bit more aware.
1: And, and that is sort of why, um, my, my current offering, you know, besides selling books and running the marketing analytics summit for those of us who do analytics, um, I offer a workshop for marketing departments that want to understand artificial intelligence. It's like we, we know it's it's like in, in 1995, we heard all this stuff about the internet and now we actually need to understand it so we can build a strategy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's 2019 and you need to understand machine learning. Not going to turn you into a data scientist, but I'm going to turn you into somebody who understands machine learning well enough to figure out, when it can be applied and how it might be used and how to observe your competitors using it against you. And that's, that's my step forward on here's how to make people just a little bit more aware that and full-time job explaining the internet to my 92 year old father and why he should not open attachments. (laughs) some things never end. <laughs> oh, that's great.
0: <laughs> well, I think we're coming upon our, our time limit here, Jim, and this has just been so fantastic to get to know you. And it, it's always encouraging to me to find another soul in this gigantic universe that shares similar philosophy and experiences and is just a pleasure to talk to you. And so I, I can't thank you enough. And I, well, I don't want to I've this-
1: enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you so much for giving the time to allow me to unpack stuff and being able to talk about me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so final two questions, my friend. Um favorite Shakespeare play.
1: Uh Henry the Sixth, parts one, two, and three, and Richard the third. And it would take an hour to explain why. Good enough.
0: (laughs) And then, uh, where can people find you to leverage your expertise? And I'll put links to all this stuff in there too. Uh,
1: Targeting.com. So my company is a target marketing of Santa Barbara targeting.com. Uh, and yes, I also got jimstern.com to redirect to it. Um, and yeah, that's the, that's the fastest way. And, uh, on Twitter at Jim Stern. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to put you on the list
0: that some point, if I'm ever in uh, your area or you're ever in Colorado, I would love to grab a beer or dinner and just continue this. So I think it would just be an absolute blast. So Jim Stern, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Really had fun. Thank you. This episode is supported by the Warm Front Chest Warmer and you're asking yourself right now what is a Warm Front? Well it is a thermal fleece bib for cycling, running, skiing and we've even had customers that are commuting with it just wearing it because they want to be warmer, wearing it to their construction jobs. It's been sold all over the world, Australia, the UK, Latvia, U.S. and Canada, even Dubai. We have a customer in Dubai. It's a company I started a couple years ago because I was sick and tired of being cold on the bike and not having enough stuff or carrying too much stuff. And literally with the help of dozens and dozens of people helped get the company and the product to where it is right now. It is essentially the Goldilocks of outdoor apparel. Not too hot, not too cold. If you get cold, put it on. You get hot, take it off. Roll it up, stuff it in your pocket. It rolls down to smaller than a pair of socks. It is made by hand here in Colorado by my friend and business partner Linda with a collaboration from Function Apparel and Polar Tech. I guarantee it personally 100%. If you don't like it, if it doesn't make your ride and your outdoor activities more comfortable, send it back, no questions asked. For more information and to get warmer, and prevent purple nurple. Go to the dot That is t h e w a r m f r o n t dot com.